Hey everybody and welcome to episode 31 of Reiki Mirai. I'm Jane, I'm your host and we've got something a wee bit different for you today because Rhonda McCrimmon from the Centre for Shamanism is with me. You might have come across Rhonda already on BBC One or in The Guardian or on the radio, BBC Radio 4 it was and Radio 5 Live. But if not, Rhonda is a Celtic shaman and seer, founder of the Centre for Shamanism and author of the Cauldron and the Drum book. I thought you guys would be interested in hearing from Rhonda about our book, The Cauldron and the Drum, about the Celtic Cauldron Power Centres because, well, for loads of reasons, but if you've listened for a little bit, you'll know that I no longer subscribe to the Chakra Healing System. I use the Celtic Cauldron Power Centres, which is an alternative to Chakras. Reiki and Chakras aren't intrinsically linked, hey? So I'm really looking forward to chatting with Rhonda. Hello. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for thank you for coming and spending time with me. Um, so let's begin with, tell me about your book. What will... The Cauldron and the Drum book. Teach a person. Hmm. So my hope for my book is that it will impart Celtic wisdom and knowledge for spiritual seekers. And it talks about Celtic shamanic pathways. And it also emphasises, the book emphasises the importance of um understanding and integrating your three cauldron power centers in a way that helps you on your spiritual journey whatever your spiritual journey looks like so for example you will um learn about the three cauldron power centers as a concept you will learn how to understand your inner landscape using this structure it's a pathway to healing the book as well so it takes you from the start from the lower cauldron and helps you to work your way through and one of the ways it does that is by sharing story some of my stories I share some of my students stories and I also share lots of practical guidance so the book I needed at the start of my path which was easy to read um, easy to understand difficult concepts and practical like action based yeah so I feel like the book bridges the gap between ancient Celtic wisdom and contemporary spiritual practices. And I think, I hope it encourages readers to connect with their ancestral roots whilst being open-hearted and listening to the wisdom of their own guides, angels, higher self, whatever you call your connection to the Mm -hmm. divine. And then finally, I think one of the most important things I try and get across in the book is this idea of ethical living and integrity. And it is one of the key fundamental parts of of celtic mythology uh, is that they live by these values so the it's the importance of living with integrity and encouraging the reader to find their own values to live in alignment with those values but to do so uh, connected to their ancestral roots that is my hope anyway (laughs) I love that. And there's a couple of things that really stick out to me in there. Firstly, that is super practical because the last thing that I want is another book that lies on the shelf. More like, you you know, your typical self-help book. Um, So 
for me, that's a massive one, a massive plus. And also, I love that, well, as in line with all of your work, um, that, it's, that it's not restrictive, that it's open, mm. that what you're doing is mm. weaving together loads of different ways, but giving someone enough space and scope to be able to adjust, adapt, apply that in a way that works for them in their mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. Um, so then the Celtic Cauldron Power Centres, what are they? And where does this system come from, if you like? Mm-hmm. Well, originally they come from a poem, a medieval poem called The Cauldron of Poesy. And I actually have a link to a translation of the medieval Irish. If any of your listeners would like to read that, I can send you the link and you can pop it on your show notes. Um, for those yeah who are in, more interested in the the root information of of the, the work that we do but essentially the three cauldrons is a system of three spiritual power centers within the human body right and they serve as a unique celtic alternative actually to the chakra system which is found in eastern t- traditions and often in reiki is you, which is your guys's area of expertise right so the concept is irish originally it's, it's irish mythology and um, the three cauldrons, I'll just give you a quick one-on-one. So the lower cauldron, the cauldron of warming or corrigoriath, it's positioned, it's thought to be positioned in the area of the belly and it's associated with you, the root of you, the root of self. All right, it's your foundation and it's often tipped over and you're, it's the place of your life force and when your lower cauldron is not at its best, then... That is often the root of fear, anxiety, the the hidden things that happen to us, the, the loss of life force, the loss of uh, the sense of who we actually are as people, who we are when we came here at conception, so to speak. And then the cauldron of motion, which is usually people experience it in the chest area or cori erma. And this is the cauldron that deals with your emotional and psychological growth, I guess. Uh, love, passion, bravery, courage, boundaries, which is my favourite word. And it really governs our interactions with other people in the world around us. So the lower cauldron is very much who you are internally and the middle cauldron is very much how you interact with the world around you and both are intrinsically linked. And then the upper cauldron, or Cori Soish, the cauldron of wisdom, usually found in the head. And that is the centre of your connection to the divine, spiritual wisdom, inspiration, enlightenment. If you're a fan of that word, it depends <laughs> it depends your associations. But it's concerned with um, the connection to, the, the, to divine inspiration, to creativity, to artistry. It's where I go, what I'm drawn when I hold healing space, for example. And it is the toughest to turn. So this cauldron is tipped. Um, it's upside down, actually, upside down at birth. And the point, one of the points of a cauldron's path is to turn it, right? So that you're able to connect ethically, safely and beautifully with the divine. Lots of people want to rush straight to the upper cauldron. They want the um, prestige of a spiritual connection or they want to channel for people or read tarot or uh, carry out Reiki treatments or work shamanically but they haven't done any work in the lower two cauldrons so what happens is that this upper cauldron can fill with things that are not in bass which is where you kind of get into that dangerous territory of um, unethical, egotistical practitioners and you get that everywhere in all walks of life spiritual and non-spiritual so that's quite interesting 
So that's our potted information. So that's enough. <laughs> yeah, it definitely is. And it's one of the main reasons um, that, and I know I spoke about this a little bit, I was on your podcast, Shaman Talk, last week, and I spoke about it a little bit in there, that tendency that you're speaking about to bypass doing the, the inner work needed to be a safe and effective mm-hmm. practitioner for other people. Often that pathway with Reiki, I've come to find, just isn't available. It's just not even taught. And so people would just kind of go out there on their own and, and, and are working backwards almost. Um, mm. So f- for a system of self-healing, the Celtic Cauldron Power Centres really resonate and work uh, for me. Not just on that level, on many others, but that is a is one that I would definitely hone in on. Um, a person doesn't have to to be Celtic or have Celtic ancestry or uh, roots to to use the cauldrons, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I think that some people will disagree with me. I don't think I know that some people disagree with me, but I can only go with um, what I feel to be correct. So to me, a person does not need to be of Celtic heritage or have Celtic roots. Um, and the word Celtic covers Britain, Ireland, and a lot of Europe as well, by the way, and and includes many distinct cultures within it. But the the issue I think that we face here is that Celtic, whatever area of Britain that you find yourself in, or or Europe, Celtic is as a broken lineage. So the Celtic traditions of the British Isles were oral; it was an oral tradition. And the reason that we still have information about the ancient Celts from the Iron Age is that the Christian monks wrote it down. Now, regardless of your feelings about Christianity, Christianity is the reason that we have access to what we do today. Because I suspect that even if it wasn't the Christians that um, interrupted, shall we say, our indigenous spiritual life, another we live in such a world that some, some other... Um, religion probably would have it's the nature of life things change but essentially if there is an an indigenous culture this is my opinion an indigenous culture that is unbroken and there is a lineage and there are wisdom keepers and there are elders who can say look this is closed um but we can share these things but not these things that would be fine but we don't have that it's a broken lineage so to me as long as you are connecting with this in a way that is open-hearted and there's a willingness to learn about historical and cultural significance, respectful engagement, um, it, it, to me, that kind of open-hearted, expansive sharing of cultures is actually what saves wisdom. Whereas the more restrictive you cannot if you do not have lineage or heritage. I mean, there are some who leave and say, if you're so I'm Scottish, so if you're not born in Scotland, you cannot sane. And saning is um a purification ritual. Um kind of like maybe smoke cleansing or smudging. It's not the same. We can get into why it's not the same, but it's kind of that sort of ritual, right? So there are some who will say, unless you were born in Scotland, you can't connect with this ritual. And even people who are born in Scotland, like myself. I've had a whole group of Scottish people uh, gang up on me, so to speak, about uh, the way that I teach saying. So to me, there's this idea of 
how is it, what are my values? And my values are expansiveness and a open-hearted sharing of knowledge and coming together as a global culture to um, uh, make this work accessible for anybody who feels drawn to it. And one final thing to say is that if, if you think that our ancestors just lived in a bubble and didn't travel, then you haven't read any history books at all. So if you feel drawn to a Celtic way of life, there's a distinct possibility that somewhere down your ancestral line, your ancestors travelled, they may have trained with um, Celtic priests. Um, some people call them druids, like, or learned something or been, their life's been saved by someone who has kept, you know, from a Celtic... Tra- you just you just don't know. Mm. So to me, I think that the restrictive nature of folks who say you have to have this or that in order to connect with a broken lineage is is flawed um and i can only speak for my heritage which is celtic i don't speak for any other traditions because that's not up to me to say what other traditions would do in that regard so there you go those are my thoughts on that uh i love what you say there because as someone who i suppose you could call it has felt uh, spiritually displaced um and, and really didn't have um, now, like my ancestry, Scottish, fifty percent French, fifty percent, um, who really didn't have a was seeking so badly a spiritual connection and finding that in a way that could just work. Mm. Uh, I, I resonate well with what a, a, a lot of what you say they are, and I'm I'm confident so many other people will as well. Um, do you know so, one thing I would say about yeah. being sorry, being spiritually displaced is there's I have a lot of um North American students, Canada, Canada and um the USA, and they'll say to me, I have Celtic ancestry, and or even if they don't, they'll say, but I'm not allowed to connect with nature-based shamanism in the US because it's indigenous and they're called um colonizers and racist and um culturally appropriative not always and not by everyone but that is the that is i would say the main story that i hear from my north north american students and then they think well okay fair enough but i do have celtic ancestry so i'm going to come to britain and i'm going to look here ireland scotland wales and england and they'll hit barrier after barrier after barrier with people saying you're not from here you're american you're not you're not welcome here happens all the time i'm like where are they supposed to go mm-hmm. these people are completely spiritually displaced so if that is you and you're listening to this you're welcome mm-hmm. at the center for shamanism on like no it's just such an open-hearted welcoming space we have mm-hmm. witches we have christians we have pagans we have secular we have doctors we have reiki practitioners we have everybody under the sun who wants to learn how to weave celtic shamanism into their life so thanks for allowing me a wee mini rant <laughs> on the subject <laughs> well at least me nicely on what, what i'm hoping to ask you next which is so you've taught thousands of people you're my teacher and mm-hmm. you've yourself have have, have, have sought out teachers so in your experience what makes a good teacher what do you look for Mm. when it comes to a teacher okay so I think for me um 
there's a combination of things that I look for in a good teacher. <clears throat> the first thing I think is the ability to be open-hearted and be, and be empathetic and compassionate regardless of what your students are going through. And if you can't be empathetic and compassionate, then you find out why you can't be. Because um, nobody's perfect. Knowledge, knowledge, wisdom. Um, somebody who can integrate knowledge they learn with um, personal experience. And I think ability to inspire was another one that I thought of as well. Like great teachers that I love are those who can ignite curiosity in me, they inspire me, they want, they, um, they make, make me feel like I want to go beyond the boundaries of what I thought was possible. And then also encourage me to question, to seek and to discover my own unique gifts and paths and abilities. You know, I never, a good teacher will never make me or anyone feel <clears throat> beneath them, restricted, boxed in, you must, you should. That's, good teachers don't do that. I think there's an openness and humility as well around being a lifelong learner, being open to new ideas and different perspectives. And I think I try and do this with my students, especially in the membership, where it's a reciprocal process, do you know? And everybody can bring their own experiences and we can learn from everybody. Clear communication is another one. Not all people are really good at conveying <clears throat> complex concepts in a clear way that's accessible. I reckon I'm pretty good at that. It's one of the things I hold as one of my values as a teacher. Um, what else? A, a safe environment safe, inclusive environment. Now, I foster a space for my students where they feel seen, heard and valued and where they feel safe to not, you know, we do eye language in our communities, but also um, holding that in balance with, I am not responsible for everything you feel. So you, you may feel challenged in this space and you may feel like you're triggered by someone or you struggle with a concept and you're allowed you're allowed your feelings you're allowed to feel challenged um so i think that's another thing about a good teacher as well is they're not they're not trying to keep everybody happy all the time they're trying to create space for people to be challenged and to learn how to overcome those challenges you know ethical integrity absolutely must um always encouraging autonomy in their students and probably like passion as well passion and commitment there are so many there that I want to focus in on, right? But I'm going yeah. to pull out just a couple because they're brilliant. So the first one is that um, without my pen and my little notepad in front of me, which I normally have, but I don't today, so I'm doing it from memory. Um, <laughs> okay, okay. The first one uh, was not having a feeling, having a, a student feel that they are below the teacher. Yeah, Because mm. this is something that uh, people speak to me about within the Reiki industry fairly frequently, this perceived hierarchy that mm. we're, I know this is different uh, shamanic pr practitioner wise, but with Reiki, we've got like levels. So typically shamanic Reiki doesn't have this, but Usui Reiki and other lineages do level one, level two, and then you've got masters. And there can often be this, um, yeah, this perceived hierarchy that the master sits at the top of the tree. And it's almost like this, bow down to that person for mm. their, their perceived gifts or whatever it might be so I, I I very much agree in everything that you were saying there in terms of learning from each other and things you know it, it being reciprocal uh, the learning mm. process also I just wanted to hone in on eye language because I'm unsure if I've ever spoken about it 
eye language is what I use in all of my spaces as well because I believe it is the only way to host any space, whether in person or online, that mm. is integrity fueled and ethical. So if you would wouldn't mind just giving us a little bit about what eye language is what eye language is, what what it's all about. Yeah. Why we so use So eye language yeah, eye language in our communities means that when you um respond to a comment or question you respond with I and not you in a nutshell. So if you imagine yourself in a Facebook group, we've actually recently shut our Facebook group, but this goes for all of our memberships. But Facebook's a good example. So if you imagine yourself in any Facebook group that you might be in, and some are worse than others, and you'll see somebody post something and you go and read underneath, you should do this, you should do that. Oh, that's really terrible. Oh, you shouldn't be doing this. And there's this like absolute fire hose of advice and projection that comes at you if you've ever experienced it or seen it. So go and, if you've not thought about it before, go and look. I language invites people to share from their own experiences. So instead of saying, you should do this, you say, I, I experienced this and this is what I did. And what that does is it takes away the projection and it means that the person who's written a post and who needs support can choose themselves the perils of wisdom that resonate for them it can be quite tricky for people um very tricky for some so they don't stay um it is quite confronting and vulnerable when you start to realize how often you say you or we we think we should we all rather than i should i think i will it's actually very different and it's quite vulnerable practice it if you haven't if you're listening um so I language is the safety mechanism of our community, essentially. Does that cover it, I think? Yeah, it does. I, I adore language, I must say, I didn't in the beginning because I, I know, own neither did I. <laughs> so that's the thing, though. So, I'll, I, I, so like I feel like I should say, I, I, yeah, I learned I language from my teacher. So in our shamanic training, I language was an absolute, the fundamental value of our circle. And I, excuse me, I hated my teacher for it and I love my teacher but I hated her for it because I was a saviour and an insufferable know-it-all so I just wanted to help everybody else because it was external and it took me away from my feeling my own crappy feelings Um, and it took years for me and it wasn't even until like I mean I respected my teacher and I followed I language but I didn't really get it until I held my own space and my Facebook group was open for about 15 minutes and I was like oh god no I need, to, mm-hmm. I need to, I can't do this. This is awful. And that's when I realised that my, Carol, as my teacher, uh, was absolutely right. And I um, implemented eye language fairly early on. So it's quite magical. It's the exact same. that You are where I learned eye language and very similar by way of huge saviour and insufferable. Not all, but there we go. We've learned. <laughs> yeah. um, so I know you self-admittedly don't say you don't know loads about Reiki mm-hmm. but I guess you'll have an opinion on what you see because you are very much part of the spiritual industry what's your impression of Reiki hmm. okay well I I mean you asked my opinion I do have many opinions but the <laughs> one it's, it's interesting Reiki's an interesting one because I will preface this um my overall opinion to say that I do know a few really beautifully connected 
ethical, gorgeous Reiki practitioners. Okay, so this is an yeah. an individual uh, finger point necessarily, but overall, I have to say. My observations have led me to perceive it as a practice that, well, I say, like I say, potentially really potent. It really appears to me to be limited in the context of a deeper spiritual and intuitive connection and development. So I, I take, I build this perception through talking to people. So a common reflection from many who come and work with me um, have a noticeable lack of confidence in applying or employing their learned Reiki techniques and that actually spills over into their shamanic work as well and it can take sometimes it's taken my students years to get the confidence to do even a shamanic journey by themselves so the hesitancy seems to stem from this foundational absence of inner work or um, encouragement of a self-led intuitive connection so from my outside perspective Reiki can feel very methodical and rules bound and constraining for practitioners and it doesn't seem to foster a deep personal connection to their intuitive healing abilities right so because it doesn't do that it what appears to me is that it really takes power away from a lot of people who have uh, skills and gifts and it takes them a long time to get that back i would say as well i think overall the challenges within the spiritual industry uh, are similar like I don't think this is unique to Reiki necessarily um, you find this in shamanic circles as well this absence of the deep personal growth needed to do on a cauldron's path to get up to this upper cauldron in a way that's uh, ethical and clear and beautiful and connected and magical and exciting so I think that question for me just underscores the potential for integrating elements from various traditions so people who bring reiki to shamanism find seem to find that shamanism really elevates the reiki practice and that's why i love what you do jane because i think that's what you do you support people reiki people reiki practitioners to um, enrich and expand their practice which is exciting and i think needed from my mm -hmm. perspective which is yep. um as an outsider to the community well, your outsider, if you like, um, experience and pers perspective very much matches mine. So, shamanic Reiki, I mean, at its core, is essentially helping people to, to connect with Reiki energy non-restrictedly, non-dogmatically, mm. and intuitively via a shamanic connection. And that flows through all of the work, whether it's energy, the course for pre-existing Reiki trained people or a new pathway, you know, um, so yeah, I tend to agree with everything that you're that you're saying in there. Anyway, we're going to come back into the into your book. Um, okay. Because just before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask you a, a final couple of questions uh, on that. So it's quite a big, quite a big deal, quite a big achievement, right? So what was your biggest mm. challenge in, in writing your book? So, hmm, okay, the answer I usually give to this is that Mirren was really little and. I had to write a lot of the book in the middle of the night and it was really challenging being a mother to a young child and having all the other things to do that I do and then also being given the opportunity to write this book. But actually, recently, there was another challenge that I faced that I feel more ready to talk about as I've 
kind of um, understood it more clearly and, and healed it more. So I'll talk about that a little bit. But for me, it was, I think the, a big challenge was ensuring the historical and cultural accuracy of the practices and beliefs discussed in the book because we deal with sparsely documented traditions and then I had to navigate various sources and discern which ones are credible and what might be speculative and romanticised and basically made up a lot of the time. And then also deciding where my spirit-led teachings meet the academic record, right? And I find that whole academic sphere really challenging because there are so many voices shouting different things um, in a way that I, I'm i just not used to the academic sphere. And apparently it's quite normal, but it's really not the way that I work. Um, so I would attempt to step into that sphere and attempt to have these discussions and it would just be lots of people shooting each other down. And I thought, you know, that's not for me. So ultimately I decided to focus on my guides, do the best to educate myself, and then also ask for help from my guardian guide. I know you talk about the guardian guide, Jane, as well, to sort of filter out the the noise and the expectations of those around me. And as my platform grows, it's interesting because I find there's also a growing number of people who seem to disagree with the way that I do things. So whether it's the name I choose, which is Celtic shamanism, which is very well thought out, or the way I teach seining that I mentioned earlier, or whatever it is, there always seems to be somebody who's unhappy. So I think as a new author, and as my platform grew in that time as well, especially on Instagram, it, that one of my biggest challenges was to step into my big girl pants and move into a place of expansion, as opposed to contraction of fear and resent, like fear and resentment and anxiety. I had to learn how to just say no. I, like if I want this to work. I have to follow my guidance, follow my guides and expand into compassion and love and just hold space for those who might disagree and keep them quite out of my sphere. And that was a very big challenge. Yeah, that's a huge challenge. And, um, you know, while, why, because I've worked with you for several years now, what, one of the things I love most about what you bring to the table at the Centre for Shamanism is that briefly touching it before it's that non-restrictive weaving everything together in a way that works how to really truly connect with spirit and divine for yourself to Mm. trust yourself fully so the weaving together of the academic knowledge and also being able to pull on that whilst listening to your guides and then bring that together uh, aye for me that's no mean feat for sure Mm. Um, if there was one thing that you could a message that you could share from your book or a section or your favourite bit then what would Mm. that be well I love all of it obviously but (laughs) If I had to choose, um, it might be the section that discusses the transformative power of the middle cauldron, the cauldron of motion, Kori Erma, and it's this space embodies our capacity for emotional growth and our ability to navigate the complexities of love, grief, joy, sorrow, 
right? So it's the bit where we get to feel our feelings. Mm. And if the work of your lower cauldron is done effectively, you'll start to feel safe to do that. And it teaches this vital lesson that our emotional experiences, both challenging and uplifting, are catalysts for personal transformation. And learning to feel my feelings was one of those pivotal moments on my healing path. Mm. I've had a few, but that was a big one. And what's interesting about the poem that I mentioned earlier is that it really focuses heavily on the middle cauldron. And that makes sense to me. The lower cauldron is difficult to describe in the sense that it's not a mental exercise. Your lower cauldron is out with the realms of the mental. You can't think your way or reason your way to lower cauldron healing. That's done through somatics, spiritual healing, breath work, things that EMDR, whatever, nervous system reset, that kind of thing. So you can't think about it. You just have to do it. Whereas when you've done that and you've reset yourself, this moving up to the middle cauldron and finally getting to connect with how you feel is so um, mesmerizing and exciting uh, especially when I realised how, how to connect with joy because I had no idea how to do that. So it's not just about feeling all your shitty feelings, it's also about feeling mm. joy as well and like enjoying your life. And you may decide that when you get to your middle cauldron, that's enough for you. You're not interested in yeah. all the spiritual stuff. Great, that's totally fine. But that's my probably my, my favourite bit of the book. When you're speaking there, I, what I'm starting to remember is when I realize the difference between excitement and anxiety because I hadn't <laughs> I, I, I didn't know what, what what they were and I started to feel these little bubbles almost like that's poppy bubbles is what I would, and mm. I was like what is this oh that's excitement like I literally mm. spent the majority of my life never like I couldn't tell the difference between the two so yeah that was yeah aye, that was lovely to think on that there when, when you were talking before we head off, is there anything else that you want to add to our conversation today? Um, I just have a real um, excitement for people who find their way to you. Reiki is a lovely modality. I've certainly had some really beautiful Reiki healing sessions. I think it has massive potential. It's a beautiful um, energy and I'm excited that people are starting to talk about how to bring it back to the mysticism and the magic that perhaps it had in the past. It's very similar to other modalities as well, shamanism being one of them. So I'm I'm just really excited for people who start to weave that innate shamanic wisdom into their Reiki pathway. Oh, thank you, as am I, as am I. Thank you so much for coming and spending time with me today. We'll put a link to... You mentioned something earlier on in the podcast, the poem. Yes. Yeah, the link to the poem and yeah. your book and where to find you. We'll put it in the podcast notes for everybody. Okay, thank you very much, Rhonda. And until we chat next podcast episode, which we're bi-weekly episodes right now for the next couple of months. So I will connect with you again in two weeks' time. Take care.